Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with director Peter Medic. Mr. Medic has directed such movies as The Ruling Class, The Changeling, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. The Hunchback of Notre Dame will be shown Saturday, April 11, 2015 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street. Now on to the interview. In audio commentaries, you stated you um, view yourself as an outsider. In directing The Hunchback, you're dealing with the ultimate outsider, Quasimodo. Is that what attracted you to the project? Well, I just, I love the original movie, which was done by Charles Lawton many years ago. And um, I thought it would be great to try and to attempt to redo it and remake it kind of very similar way as the original piece was. So that was the reason I did it. Okay. And then, of course, working with Richard Harris, you know, was great. He was an old friend. And um, and Mandy Potemkin, who I'd worked with prior before, and uh, also Selma Hayek, who I didn't know at the time. But it was a great pleasure working with them all. They were wonderful. As you said, The Hunchback of Notre Dame has been filmed several times before, and the little Charles mm-hmm. Lawton version, but... What did you want to accomplish in this version that you felt hadn't been done before? Well, just me doing it, you know, me taking that same story and and doing it in a, today in a slightly different way than it was done then. You know, it, it's you can always remake things because um, you know audiences sometimes don't want to see an old movie and they prefer to see something which was done recently. And at that time we did it, you know, Selma Hayek was a very new actress and and, uh, and she became very famous soon after. I've read that you left Hungary at the age of 18 and The Hunchback was filmed there. And what was your experience like returning to your homeland to make a movie there? I mean, that was amazing because I left Hungary in 1956 during the revolution went to England and um, really become English and started in the film business. And um, it was a great chance to go back and shoot this in Hungary, although I was living in America by then. And uh, it was very interesting because I left during communism and uh, I had never been really back. Uh, I was back before, 30 years after I left, but um, this was a little bit later, but I never worked there before and I was always dreaming making movies in Hungary and uh, it wasn't possible so it was a great chance to go back home and actually do something in the streets which I knew so well. Several of your movies, Negatives, A Day in the Death of Joe Egg, The Ruling Class and The Odd Job are black comedies and what's your attraction to the black comedy? Well, I love I love funny things, you know. And, and black comedies is really it's it's about real life, you know. And uh, uh, doing it, um, I'm observing it through a very funny. I mean, I've always believed that most tragic moments in life, there's always a very funny side to it, which makes it very real, you know. And uh, it's a wonderful uh, form of in 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 theater and also in films, black comedy. And uh, um, that was the reason, you know, because I loved uh, that form and I loved doing it so much. 
you stated you've worked at Hammer Studios and as an assistant director, and what was that experience like? Well, at that time, you know, it was around the early 50s, 1960, maybe 1959, 60. And they were very known for making horror movies, you know. And um, um, that was a wonderful opportunity to work with some great directors, uh, particularly Joe Losey, who uh, was blacklisted American director, and he couldn't get any work in, in America. So he came to England, and uh, he ironically started doing these horror, horror movies. And uh, it, it, it's, um, I mean, they're all being, being remade, you know, and they're quite wonderful little projects, you know, and a uh, little bit like the Alfred Hitchcock Half an Hour series, you know, because it was classical kind of um, horror or ghost or Frankenstein stories. And, um, um, you know, those days it was hard to make them into movies, you know, so it, it was great that this company did nothing else but that. While you were there, you were an assistant, too, for the director, Terrence Fisher, and I'm always a fan of his. Could you talk about working with him, and did he have an influence on your career? No, he was a lovely, lovely, gentle man. I mean, yes, it had an influence because it was incredibly economical and um, knew exactly what he was doing. And those days, those movies were done in two weeks and two and a half days. And he was a master of it, you know, of shooting really fast. And uh, he was really lovely, lovely person, you know. And uh, it was a very funny thing happened one day because we were shooting and um, he fell asleep sitting under the camera and we finished the scene. And I didn't know what to do, whether to wake him up. And, and so I just got the camera, you know, and then he eventually woke up. But I remember it was hysterical, you know. The only time I knew anybody falling asleep while he was shooting, and it's not because of negligence, but I mean he was it was a tiring long day, but he was a lovely, lovely person, and he made so many of these horror movies, and he was a great expert at it, you know. Okay. So he was wonderful. Well, going a little further into the horror films, you directed the Changeling and the Master of Horror episodes, the Washingtonians and Species mm -hmm. 2, and the Tales from the Crypt episode, the New Arrival. And when you made these films, did your days at Hammer influence your way of thinking when you were directing those television shows or movies? Well, not, but I mean, it was part of my training, not really... No, it was more mostly Hitchcock, you know, who I'd worked with here in America when I first came over. I was fortunate enough to observe him shooting a film at Universal Studios where I was under contract to. But, I mean, the changeling was completely influenced by Hitchcock, you know, if I did it the way he would have done it. But everything, you know, every time when you work, you know, you kind of, when you grow up slowly in this business, you know, you kind of collect unconsciously information and by being on other film sets you know you see how things are done which not necessarily would be your idea but it's one way of doing it and it's a great experience to be thrown into the pot like that and push different directors do different things different way you directed the ruling class which was released in 1971 but i saw it when it was re-released in 1983 at my local cinema and 
Oh, really? Yeah, uh -huh. uh-huh. And what was the reaction to it from your perspective from 1971 and then in 1983? Well, I remember the reaction when the film came out, which was tremendous in 19, I think, 72, when the film was released, or 73, or 72, I think. And it won um, um, a certain price in Cannes and had a tremendous reception. And uh, then it opened in London, and it played in one cinema for one year. Uh, I mean, many other cinemas, but in one particular cinema in the West End of London, uh, it played for one whole year, nonstop. And it was incredibly well received. And it, again, it was a black comedy. You know, when you're making something funny out of a tragic situation. And um, so the response was tremendous. And then the film was actually released, I think, 10 years later in 1981 or 2 or 3, something like that, by in America. And again, it had a whole complete revival. And then recently, about four or five years ago, Criterion, the DVD label, went into tremendous uh, troubles to uh, remix and redo and, and represent on, on high definition and, and uh, a Blu-ray uh, DVD of the film. And so it's constantly, and it's constantly being played, and I'm constantly being asked to go and give lectures about it or talk about it or go to screenings. And, and the other day, about a month ago, there was a screening here in a silent movie theater, which belongs to Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino. He owns that cinema. And uh, I told the people, I said, but nobody's going to turn up after, you know, 1970, you know. And to my amazement, they were standing in five blocks, in standing in line to get in. And uh, it was a fantastic screening after all these years was very encouraging, you know. And that film doesn't seem to date somehow. Some of my other movies does, you know, but um, it had a very honest intention. In that audio commentary of the Criterion DVD of the ruling class, the writer um, and playwright Peter Barnes stated you had an operatic flair for extravagance and fables. Do you agree with that statement? What did he say? He said that you had an operatic flair for extravagance and fun. Oh, yeah, 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 I did. I did. He was a lovely, lovely friend who I worked with on many of my scripts. He was always helping me. He's unfortunately passed away, but he was a brilliant writer. I saw the play very early on, and we decided to try to get a movie made of the film. Uh, then we got Peter O'Toole, and then Peter actually bought the, bought the play from Peter to do for me to direct it, you know. And then a couple of years later, we made the movie. But um, um, no, Peter Barnes was a very, very special writer, very, very funny, and he mostly wrote comedies, you know. And uh, the play actually is being revived in London in the West End right now. It's probably going to come to Broadway if it succeeds. 
but it's 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 a it's kind of a the, I mean the movie was really great, but it it was basically great because of the script of the play Peter has written, and of course of because of O'Toole's performance, which was quite unique. We had a fantastic time making that film, and was so easy to do it. You know, it was totally effortless. And it's a long time ago, 1970, my God, you know, mm-hmm. or 71. But it's still, it's wonderful to see the film still be being played after all these years in cinemas. And then I have to go and give lectures about it, and yeah, and talk also, about it. Also to get it revived again from, you know, like I said, when I saw it in 83. So, you know, that's kind of rare too. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Your first film, Negatives, starred Linda Jackson, and I was looking, and it was like her first starring role, and how did you come to cast her in the film? Well, I mean, she was a very famous actress already in London, unknown in movies, particularly in America. I just, uh, she did a very wonderful play about Marat Saad, which Peter Brook directed, and that became the sensation of London. In, in the like 1966 or something, 67, you know, and that's when I first noticed her, and I was just absolutely so taken by her talent and her look, and and it was so raw and wonderful. So it 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 was amazing, you know, amazing opportunity to get her and and the other actors and started rehearsing the film and uh, before shooting it and it was a fantastic experience you know and I see her really every other year when I go back to London and she hasn't changed at all although she's uh, given up acting about 20 years ago Uh, but it's still the same I always call her good old Glenda because she never changes she's such a solid, strong, incredibly committed person, you know, and she's gone into politics 20 years ago, but now she's, uh, I think, uh, retiring from it. In 1978, you directed Graham Chapman of Monty Python theme in The Odd Job, and Mr. Chapman co-wrote, co-produced, and starred in the movie, and I was just wondering what were the advantages or disadvantages of having your lead wear so many uh, creative hats? Well, I mean, what always happens that they take these credits, you know. I mean, he did, uh, I mean, uh, Bernard wrote the script, who, and the whole script came from a, an art television play, which was very, very successful in London or in England, you know. Uh-huh. And, um, um, you know, Graham kind of co-wrote, the, I'm not sure how much of it he actually written of the script or wrote it, you know. I would be surprised if he really did it, you know, but um, um, he was very powerful, you know, at the time in the business because of the Monty Pythons. But he was, again, wonderful to work with and then become a great friend at the time. I mean, there's no, it's it's really, you know, so often actors just take this honorary credit, you know, that they're executive producers or something else, or Johnny Depp exec produced by, you know. But that that's how those things come about, because 
you know, actors are actors, and I've worked many times with other actors, movie stars, who all had life control of the material. And um, it's 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 really um, there's nothing too helpful about it. It's just really an ego trip for them to put their name on it, on the film. Because they basically, you know, they, you, you can't act and produce. It's impossible because it's so involved um, to be a producer that you, got, you can't do the two things at the same time. I mean, you can be an exact producer, but, but even that is very tricky. Okay. In 1991, you directed Let Him Have It, a true story about Derek Bentley, who was hanged for murder under controversial circumstances. And... Was Derek Bentley's sister Iris a technical advisor, and what did she think of the final movie? Oh, no, she loved it, you know, Iris. You know, she was an incredible lady. And she, um, uh, I talked a lot to her before I'd made the movie and then spent a lot of time with her publicizing the film in New York and, and Los Angeles and everywhere when the film opened. And she was incredibly helpful, you know, because she really, I mean, she lived the whole story. And one day I was having a cup of tea with her before I did the film, and I was asking her, what does she remember about 9 o'clock when, when Derek was hung? And she said that, uh, her, you know, the whole family, her brother, sister, and father, mother, were absolutely destroyed like at five to nine, and they were hysterically crying in the middle of the living room and uh, clinging onto each other and, and all that. And she said she couldn't take it anymore. And then she walked out into the street and uh, walked away from the little working-class house. And then when, when she turned back to look at the house from the distance from the top of the street, she suddenly saw white light hit the house. And she said to me that I knew Derek was there to protect us, and that was probably the moment when he was hung, you know. And so Iris felt forever that Derek was there looking after them. Then she said, it was at 9 o'clock, she said to me, he said, you know, and the clock, the mantelpiece clock, stopped at 9 o'clock, it broke, and I could never get it repaired. And I was absolutely amazed by this. And she said, you want to come and see it? And she took me up into her bedroom. And on the top of her closet, you know, was standing this kind of lovely old clock at like 9 o'clock. And it was a haunting thing. So when I heard this story, I changed the whole ending of the film. And that's how the film ended. And so she was incredibly, incredibly valuable, and she was a fantastic lady. And, and uh, you know, but this whole injustice of the law completely destroyed that poor family. And so it was a very tragic story. And the, the reason I made the movie was really uh, for the last 40 minutes of the film when uh, Derek Blanty's father, Tom Courtney, fights every kind of legalities and every... Um, and, and, you know, any kind of important people uh, who could help, you know, to stop this kind of craziness of hanging him because 
he really wasn't responsible for the murder of the policeman. And uh, because he was already separated on the roof, and, and there's no way it had anything to do with him. But because of the other boy was uh, underaged, somebody had to be punished for it, and Derek was 17 at the time. And uh, so they passed the death sentence on him, and then he was hung. And um, the, so the, the struggle of the family to try to stop this uh, hanging and appealing and reappealing and going everywhere and then going to Winston Churchill and uh, then going to the Queen. And, and uh, on every stage they were hoping that it was going to be stopped. And then eventually it came to the last day and it was nine in the morning and he was hung. And uh, like 30 years later, kind of due to the film in a way, uh, which was the film was screened at the parliament for the MPs by the publicity people, and uh, they couldn't believe, you know, that this could have happened uh, years ago. And uh, there was another hearing, and uh, then there was another retard trial in a way, and again. The verdict was that uh, Derek Bentley was guilty because he was an accomplice to the murder of the policeman, Miles, who was the cop, who was shot dead. And um, then the movie came out, and poor Iris was kind of very sick with cancer, and um, then she passed away. And about six months after she passed away, finally, the police admitted that they had lied about the whole story. And that's when he was given a posthumous pardon. And it was an incredible, incredible movie to make. You know, it's one of my favorites, you know, because uh, it, it, it's such a tragic story, you know. I love making the film because the actors were absolutely superb in it. And uh, an incredibly emotional film for me and for everybody. So it was um, a big honor to have been able to make that film for me. Well, in 1990, you directed The Craze about the English gangsters Ronald and Reginald Craze, mm -hmm. and you had dealings with the brothers before you made the film. Could you discuss that? Yeah, but when I was an assistant director, when I was an assistant director uh, on another film called Sparrows Can't Sing, which was directed by Joan Littlewood, who was a legendary stage director in England after the war, who introduced working-class theatre to the people of London. And she had this incredible theatre um, in uh, the east end of London called Theatre Royal, Stratford East. And anyhow, she was doing some incredible plays, Brandon Behan's plays and, and everything. And... and so when we did uh, Sparrows Can't Sing on the first day of shooting, suddenly all these black cars turned up and all these guys, about five of them or ten of them, got out and they walked on the set and it was in the streets of the East End. And they said, who is in charge of this? What's going on? You know, And everybody pointed at me because I was the first assistant director. So these two came to me, which I then realized it was Reggie and Ronnie Cray. And they said, you know, what's going on? What are you doing here? And I said, we're making a movie, you know. 
and he said, um, um, did you get any permission, you know, to shoot here? I said, yes, from the police, you know. And then they said, but you didn't get any permission from us. And they said, you could be get into terrible trouble just shooting here. And I said, get into terrible trouble by who? And they said, by us. And you said, you could get killed, you know. <laughs> and that's how I met them. And that evening I had to go down to the headquarters, which was a club on Commercial Road in the east end of London called the Kentucky Club. And then I, that, that, that's when I met them, and they said, well, you can't just go shooting like this. You know, you have to have two of our guys with us, two of our minders, they called them, you know, who was part of the gang. And um, he said, that will cost you about £2,000 a week, which was a lot of money then. But he said, you won't have any trouble. And if you don't do that, you could get into big trouble. So we employed these two, and then we actually become, I become friendly with them, you know, because they kept inviting me on the weekends to charity wrestling matches in the East End. And um, all the police was there, and the local mayor, and everybody dressed up in dinner jackets, and but at that time, the craze, um, I didn't know really who they were, but I knew they owned uh, a great number of clubs in the East End of London. And all kinds of people like Judy Garland was friends of theirs. And they were boxers when they were kids, young boys from the age six or seven. So they become legendary boxers first in London. I mean, not in London, in the East End of London. So when all the American famous boxers came to town, the first thing they did, they went to their nightclubs in the East End because they all knew each other. So they had this incredible kind of profile, you know, with um, entertainment people and also with the greatest boxers in the world. And they were amazing boxers when they were kids. And I, I always said that uh, Reggie, who was the better-looking one, who was the taller one, could have become Sean Connery if it hadn't been for his psychotic brother, the twin brother, who really dragged him into crime and violence and stuff like that. And um, so I knew them a long, long time. But they went to prison in 1968, and they were both in prison and died in prison, basically. I mean, Reggie was let out because he was dying of leukemia. But the other brother, Ronnie, died in prison. It was an incredible picture of the East End of London after the war period, you know. So, again, it was a wonderful thing for me to do. And for me, the two movies, Let Him Have It and The Craze, kind of run in hand, hand in hand, because the craze is really about uh, grown-up violence, and then Let Him Have It was about juvenile violence in the in London. I've seen that, you know, I was there, fortunately, in England, so I knew that world very well, and it was a great help for me to make these two films, because I knew what the 60s 50s and the 60s looked like in London.
you said that the Crays, you know, they went to prison, but I'm, they were still alive when the film came out. Do you know if they saw the movie? They were allowed to see it in prison, and they were very impressed with it. The only thing, I got a message from Ronnie Cray saying, you know, tell Pete that he made a mistake because our mom never swore. And it was a very funny comment, you know, which is probably true, because the women in the East End of London were very proud and very proper, in a way. And the craze never harmed women, you know. Only men. They never had any, 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 and they never committed any violence towards women. One of the shows that you directed from the 80s, you worked on The Twilight Zone, and you directed yes. an episode called Button Button, based on a Richard yes. Matheson short story. And yes. it was later, Richard Kelly directed his own version of the story, and I read where your version was a main influence on him. He even hired Basil Hoffman for his movie. Yes. Did you see mm. his version, and what did you think? I think I saw it, but I barely remember it. But I know it was a very overblown big movie, um, and um, I didn't think too much of it, you know, because it it, it was it. I, I think it's not. I mean, we made our thing in a few days, like in maybe six days shooting, you know, which is nothing. But, you know, my actors were so fantastic in it, uh, including Basil. And it was, a, it was a tiny little story. And sometimes when they're blown up into a big movie, you have to write so much more to it that it loses its power, I think, you know. I was very pleased and I've seen it. I've seen it recently, you know. Because you can get it on the internet. You can get anything on the internet now. I loved making it, you know, and I loved Basil, and I loved, uh, um, you know, the wonderful actor who unfortunately passed away, you know, uh, Brad Davis, who was fabulous. And Mary Winningham played his wife, who I absolutely adore as an actress. And so it was a great uh, piece of work for me, you know. I mean, uh, what is five days is nothing. I mean, it took about a month to do it, you know, with preparation. And then, but I did another Twilight Zone with Helen Mirren, you know, which was also quite unique. And it it was, I can't remember the name of it. I think it's Dead Woman's Shoes? Bear, Bear, Dead Woman's Shoes, that's right. And it's, it's so ironic because Helen, at the time, who's a brilliant actress, and you see how much accolades she gets now and, and every time she makes a movie it's nominated for an Oscar and she's a brilliant actress and an old wonderful old friend but at the time when we did Dead Woman's Shoes nobody would employ her in Los Angeles and she already done the, the prime, prime Suspect in England which was a big hit also in America but the film business is quite idiotic sometimes, and it never really recognizes talent unless it's been proven. And once you become incredibly well-known, you know, you don't need any help, you know. Not that Helen ever needed any help. But when we did that, that woman's shoes, it, I think it's the first time she worked in America at that time. Uh, but she lived here. But nobody would give her a great movie, and then um, a few years later, of course, you know, she made one big hit after the other, and, and now it's like um, 
you can get anything financed if you got Helen Mirren, you know. And she's a fabulous actress, and she was so beautiful in this film. And again, it was done like in five or six days, which is ridiculous, you know. But they were our long, our long stories. But it was again a great chance to have worked with Helen, and uh, she's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful actress. And the funny thing is, everybody thinks she's English, but she's really Russian. Her whole past is from Russia. And I think she was born in England, but both parents were Russian. But she's a wonderful lady. And and, and so was everybody in Button Button. I love Basil Hoffman, and I used him several times in movies I made. Because he's got such a wonderful presence and such an odd personality and face. You also directed the episode of Hannibal that Brian Fuller asked NBC to pull, and it starred Molly Shannon. Were you surprised, and what was your reaction when that happened? <laughs> well, no, I was very surprised because, I mean, I knew, and I love Molly Shannon, I loved her, you know, and, and uh, it, it was great. I mean, they wanted to get some kind of a personality like that, but I think Brian had worked with her before, so he always had her in mind when he wrote the script. And she was absolutely wonderful, you know. And the show is a wonderful show. And I directed two episodes, one in each season. And um, it was a great, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. There's Matt Mickelson and Hugh Dancy, and I really love doing it, you know. It just keeps you going creatively because, you know, you just walk in uh, into a whole different world, you know, and as long as one can visually do something to it, then it's very challenging and wonderful to do. Okay. Uh, you've, like we, you've directed several television shows, and one of my favorite that you directed was your episode of Breaking Bad called Peekaboo. And yeah. I was just curious, how much freedom do you have on a, that particular episode? Because it seemed to have a lot of your trademark like the black comedy yeah, no. dysfunctional family and yeah it seemed to be no it just was quite 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 a lot <clears throat> yeah it was quite a lot of freedom you know because um um they particularly asked me the producers they said just do whatever you want with it you know and uh and just fly with it whatever you comes to you uh, because that's why behind you you know and uh and it, it happened very early on on the show. So um, I can't remember, was it, it? I think it was the first season, I think. Maybe maybe the second. I know it was fairly early on. I don't know, you know. But it, it uh, no, particularly the Hannibal was very early on, so I could contribute to it quite a bit then before the characters weren't quite formed. But in Peekaboo, I think it was the second season, but it was it was great. It was just great because I was given whatever I wanted, whatever crazy angles I wanted to shoot or needed special equipment, you know. Uh, we'll put periscope thing down so you're absolutely on the level of the street floor looking up at somebody. And, you know, which all need special equipment. And normally in television, you know, it's the last thing the producers want to hear because it costs more money and uh, to 
get all these things, you know, and, and uh, so I never encouraged to do it, but here they said, whatever you want to do, you know. So it was a lovely episode, you know, and everybody goes on about it. It was one of the best episodes of the whole thing, but I don't know about that, but uh, it was great, and I love working with Brian Cranston and um, the rest of the cast. It was just great, you know, Aaron Paul, and uh, uh, they deserve every success they got because they were brilliant people. My uh, co-worker wants to know about the little boy. Um, how did you come to cast him? But it's, it's always very tricky with kids, you know, because you can only work with them three hours in one row, you know, and non non-stop, and then you then have to go into the class because they have um, uh, tutors, you know, and then they go to do an hour of schooling, and then they can do another two hours. There are some very strict rules about that. And uh, so um, we cast two boys who were twins, you know, and one of them was great, and the other was incredibly hyper, so I really only could use one of them. (laughs) But... (laughs) You know, from the distance, you know, you could get away with it, you know, because the, the, because they were twins, their bodies looked exactly the same. And so someone someone in, in, in the shots, you know, which is done from behind was, but the trouble is that then you have to stop shooting and it's all lit from this side. And uh, so it gets incredibly complicated, you know. But the, 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 the one kid was absolutely great, the one twin brother. And... Uh, so and then, but still, you know, with children, it's very difficult to work with, and you have to talk them through it. It's like saying, "Look at the television now, and don't look at me." You know, just keep looking, stare at the television. Or oh, now you hear a noise, and now you there's somebody, there's a ghost coming in. You know, so then they turn around and they look. You know, but you have to talk them through at that age. I mean, sometimes there are some brilliant kids who can learn pages and pages of dialogue and, and they're just on remote control and do anything for you but it's, it's a difficult thing with children that young age you know 7 or 8 or even 12 years old you know it's tricky but it was great it worked out incredibly well and once it's got together you know you cut out all the bad bits and <laughs> And the way you go with it, you know. But it's it's the magic of making movies. That's what it is. I would like to thank Peter Medic for doing the interview. Remember, come to the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street on Saturday, April 11, 2015 at 2 p.m. to see The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Today's music is by Michael Kamen from the movie Let Him Have It.